Hello, and welcome to Autocracy Now. This episode, we'll be looking at Huey Long in the Senate. Back in the day, the main form of entertainment was of course the radio, and Amos and Andy was a popular radio sitcom about a couple of best friends trying to make it in the big city of Chicago. The show had some pretty racist undertones, but that was par for the course at the time. Now, it was so popular that in a lot of movie theatres, they'd stop the film halfway through and stick a radio up on the stage so that everyone could listen to the new episode live. One of the characters, Andy, was gullible and constantly on the lookout for get-rich-quick schemes. Enter a smooth-talking schemer called the Kingfish, who was constantly trying to manipulate Andy and scam him out of his money. Huey Long delighted in listening to the programme, and when people started to nickname him the Kingfish, he gleefully encouraged it. If the Louisiana Kingfish was a swindler, though, he just pulled off a pretty amazing grift on the people of Louisiana, having been elected as their senator with a big majority. Moving on to the national stage, though, Huey didn't lose sight of his power base. The next order of business for him was ensuring the line of succession. you remember that Huey had to leave the Senate seat vacant for the first four months, else the Lieutenant Governor, Paul Sear, who despised him, would set about reversing all of his policies as an acting governor. So Huey felt that he had to make sure that his own hand-picked candidate would succeed him, and, in O.K. Allen, a long-time friend and confidant, he had his man. There was only one slight problem. His own brother, Earl Long, wanted to be on the ticket as Lieutenant Governor. Huey said that there'd be too much Long in politics if Earl got involved. The reality is that he probably knew that his brother was too headstrong and impetuous, and unlikely to obey his orders while he was off at the Senate. He felt that he needed all of the powers that he had accrued in the Governor's office, and he had absolutely no intention of sharing them, not even with his own brother. So he refused to endorse Earl, and the fractious relationship between the two brothers fell down another notch. O.K. Allen, meanwhile, well, he knew what side his bread was buttered on. At speeches during their campaign rallies, Huey spent three times as long speaking than Allen did. Sometimes Allen wouldn't even speak at all, leaving it all to Huey. Indeed, whenever Huey came back from Louisiana from the Senate, it's said that Allen would move into a secretary's office in the Capitol building, while Huey would move back to his rightful place in the office of the governor. I'm sure O.K. Allen had some ideas of his own. It's just rather hard to work out what they were. Erlong used to joke that one time a leaf blew into the Capitol office where O.K. Allen was working, and he signed it because he thought it was from Huey. For quite some time in one-party Louisiana, the politics had been split between two opposing camps, completely defined by Huey, anti-Long and pro-Long. Well, O.K. Allen would be the Long candidate. And in the end, the Long candidate would outperform his nearest rival by a nearly two-to-one margin. But of course, because this was Louisiana in the 1930s, there's absolutely no way we're going to get to the end of the election without some ridiculous high drama. In this instance, drama's name was Paul Sear. Probably realising that he had no hope of legitimately winning the election against a Long candidate, Sear sued Long. He argued that by becoming senator, he had naturally forfeited his role as governor. But Sear didn't even wait for the results of the legal process to come in, and had himself sworn in as governor on the spot. Huey, who obviously had a flair for drama himself, reacted um, dramatically to this proclamation, putting his militia on notice and herring down the motorway at 90 miles an hour with a pistol tucked in his pocket. He ordered that the governor's mansion be surrounded by the police in case Sear tried to occupy it. Then, with brilliant cheek, he countersued Sear, arguing that by trying to become governor, he had vacated his office as lieutenant governor. Soon enough, the lawyers found for Huey, and Sear was replaced by the next man in line. Huey now no longer needed to be held hostage by his embittered deputy. 
In the end, Sia's bizarre attempted coup had nothing that could possibly make it stick. It's easy to see him as irrational and deranged, and difficult to see exactly how he thought this little scheme was going to work. And the people of Louisiana got the joke. Soon enough, dozens of wags showed up at public offices and demanded that I should be sworn in as governor. Sia lost in the courts, and this bizarre challenge to Huey was quickly extinguished. Indeed, the wonderfully unbiased press said that Sia had, quote, about as much chance of being installed or elected governor of Louisiana as a Texas billy goat had of making a non-stop jump to the planet Mars. There's barely ever time to look back when we're following the whirlwind life of Huey, but before we follow him to the Senate, it's worth looking back on his term as governor. The really amazing thing about the Kingfish, compared to a lot of populists and demagogues, is that he did actually manage to achieve some of his promises. The school books had been distributed to every family, Bridges, roads and hospitals had been built. Of course, throughout all of this, he had his critics. They mostly attacked Huey for this vast increase in public spending and fiscal irresponsibility, and it was perfectly true that the amount of money spent by the state had shot up, and I'm sure a lot of it had gone into the pockets of Long and his associates as well. In fact, during Huey's term, the state money more than doubled. In 1928, they were spending $29 million a year, while by 1931, it was $83 million dollars. And this wasn't compensated for by the taxes that Huey had tried so hard to force through, which were, in reality, small potatoes compared to this kind of spending. The public debt increased from $11 million to an amazing $125 million, and the situation was so bad that the bonds issued by the state of Louisiana were soon practically worthless. So the charges of fiscal irresponsibility aren't completely without merit. But defenders of Huey Long will point out that, in actual fact, This is exactly what modern-day economics suggests that you're supposed to do in the case of a depression. After all, Franklin D. Roosevelt is about to launch the New Deal, which involved a huge increase in public spending to kickstart the economy, boost employment levels, and, you know, spend your way out of it. And that's what we do in the modern era, too. But it's too far to say that Huey was an economic genius ahead of his time. He just wanted the political gains that this kind of expenditure could bring. And far more damning, we should never forget, that a good deal of the public money wound up funding Huey's political machines, and in the pockets of his cronies. Leaving the state in the capable hands of a sock puppet, Huey went to Washington before his term as governor actually expired. When he was met by a bevy of reporters, they were keen to know, should we call you governor or senator? He simply replied, they call me the kingfish. It's difficult to figure out in the early days who was more curious about whom, Rumours of Huey's exploits and character had probably percolated, even to the senators. And of course, Huey was immediately trying to scope out the political situation, to see who his allies and adversaries might be. I get the sense, even in my limited reading about the politics of the state, that Huey wasn't the typical senator to emerge from Louisiana. They were more used to the establishment, well-to-do, honourable, southern gentleman types like Featherduster Rancel, not rabble-rousing lawyers like Huey. And the lie of the land in US national politics was very dramatic at this time. This was 1932. People were living in slums dubbed Hoovervilles after the sitting president due to the terrible effects of the Great Depression. Conventional politics seemed to have failed people who had lived through years of hardship. Huey was determined to bring his fiery brand of radical populism to the hallowed floors of the US Senate. And it was just conceivable that, given the times, people might listen to him. But if Huey had imagined that he'd be able to waltz into the Senate, with its reputation for slow negotiations and bipartisan consensus, and dominate it in the same way as he had done Louisiana politics, 
Well, he was in for a rude awakening. Maybe part of the issues were that, in many ways, he was now part of the exact elites that he'd been rebelling against for his entire life. But Huey barely even engaged with the Senate at all to begin with, often rushing back to Louisiana to take care of some business or other. He showed little interest in the committees that he was assigned to, showing up to fewer than half of their meetings, and rarely contributing. And when he was asked about the state of Washington by the folks back home, he railed bitterly against even his fellow Democratic senators. Quote, The Democrats seem like a whipped rooster with the victor pecking us on the head, all standing there, bleeding, taking it. Not that Huey was a non-entity. Indeed, to the senators, he was something of an annoyance, running around in a bright red necktie and brown tweed, as well as ostentatiously monogrammed shirts, the kind of thing that made him stand out from the crowd. There are countless anecdotes of him backslapping a horrified fellow senator and referring to him in over-familiar terms. He stalked around the Senate, constantly in motion, like he was delivering one of his flailing-armed speeches. We've talked in previous episodes about Huey's boorish behaviour being carefully calculated to ensure that his supporters loved him, and certainly he built his career around standing out. But it's also worth bearing in mind that he probably didn't know how he was supposed to act, and some of the disappointment that he seemed to have in the lack of radical energy of the Democratic senators. Well, this is likely genuine. He might have thought that he was on the party of the working class and the common people, and not found them to be that when he got there. And they didn't all take to him either. Indeed, Roosevelt's wife always just referred to him as that awful man. When Huey did speak, he would always divert the theme to his one real core issue of national politics, wealth inequality and redistribution. A few months in, he delivered a dramatic speech, entitled The Doom of America's Dream. This was the first of the Huey Long dramatic speeches in the Senate that would bring people to come from miles around to hear what he had to say. Here he introduced the first few measures of what would become the Huey Long Share Our Wealth programme. Personal fortunes should be limited, and the remaining loot divided up amongst the poor. Huey's rhetoric was as soaring as it ever was. Quote, there can be no rule so sure as one that the same mill that grinds out the fortunes above a certain size at the top grinds out the paupers at the bottom. This great dream of America, this light and this great hope, have almost gone out of sight in this day and time, and everybody knows it. End quote. If Huey had hoped to persuade the senators with his rhetoric, though, he was in for some bitter disappointment. No one really seemed especially interested in wealth redistribution, and his speeches instantly marked him as the most radical man in the body. Although they got some positive press coverage, one newspaper said that it was the most impassioned plea on behalf of the impoverished people for years. But all of the amendments that Huey introduced for wealth sharing were voted down by sound majorities. One conservative senator, you can imagine him maybe puffing on a pipe as he said this, said, We always have a wild man in the Senate. We let him blow off steam, and then we tame him. But of course, the whirlwind had no intention of being tamed. It had probably always been clear to Huey that the Senate was just another body that he had to go around. He now had a platform, a national platform, to elevate his demagoguery and popular appeal to the national stage. He didn't want to work with the rest of the Senate, or even with the rest of the Democratic Party. Instead, he wanted to be an alternative to them. The exasperated senators, listening to his wild impassioned speeches about inequality and injustice, were listening to tirades that were only half meant for them. Huey always had one eye on the public gallery. There's one usually reliable way to get people to pay attention to you, 
and it's one that's worked well for Huey in the past. Do you remember when I told you about how he talked about getting support in some new town or locality? The plan was basically to find the guy in charge and take him down. Then the opposition coalesces around you, and then you could negotiate with the undecideds. Huey never wanted to be a lackey for the man in charge, and so he reserved his most vicious attacks for Joe Robinson, who was the leader of the Democratic opposition in the Senate. And his strategy for attacking opponents on the national stage was practically singing from the Louisiana hymn sheet again. He denounced Joe Robinson as being bought and paid for by corporate special interests. At one point, he listed the corporations that were clients of Robinson's law firm, arguing that his votes had been corruptly bought by these companies. You'll remember that Huey now, he's not really being a hypocrite, because in his legal career, he made it a point of never really working for the big corporate dollars, so he could still smear others as being bought and paid for when he wanted to. Those of you who have been closely following US politics recently will know that there are certain rules in the Senate about disparaging the conduct of other members on the floor. Huey risked being thrown out, as well as alienating the more moderate members of his own party. After all, when they should be united, attacking the Republicans in charge, he was there attacking their own leader. Even if they had access to grind with Robinson, this complete lack of decorum was unlikely to be successful. But you have to remember that Huey is always gunning for the top position, and to sweep to power, he'd have to be a very unconventional Democrat. He had to use his voice. Already, when he spoke to members of the public, he was starting to denounce both parties. He said, quote, They've got a set of Republican waiters on one side and a set of Democratic waiters on the other side, but no matter which set of waiters bring you the dish, the legislative grub is all prepared in the same Wall Street kitchen. But when he wasn't stretching metaphors too far, Huey was engaging in the other great tradition of the Senate. This is one most suited to Huey's political talents. I'm talking, of course, about the filibuster. And yeah, I do love a traditional political filibuster. It's such a great idea. Like Cicero inventing it, all of it, it's brilliant. Um, so I might drool a little bit over this, but never mind. For those of you who don't know, a filibuster is a technique you can use in certain democratic bodies where you have a right to speak for as long as possible in order to draw attention to a specific cause or, more usually, block a piece of legislation in a spectacular, if undemocratic, fashion. You just carry on talking, and talking, and talking. The allotted time for deciding the bill elapses. In extreme cases, a single individual can block legislation by bibbling on for hours on end. And naturally, Huey, with his dramatic flailing-armed oratory, loved it. During one filibuster, I am beginning to be convinced by the logic of my own argument, he said, teasingly strutting around the Senate. I feel the urge to go on and talk some more. Huey regularly deployed filibusters to block key pieces of legislation and draw attention to himself and his Share the Wealth program. He would often intersperse his speeches with personal attacks and anecdotes. And so his filibusters became his career in microcosm. He strode around dramatically and emotionally demagoguing, wittily talking down his rivals. Meanwhile, the distinguished gentlemen of the Senate looked with increasing disgust and disdain. But in the public galleries, people would flood to see him. Ordinary procedural legislative meetings would turn into a complete circus. People would phone each other from across the city when Huey started talking. A lot of people couldn't accept him as anything more than a sideshow to their serious business. Some were outraged. What's undeniable is that he was impossible to ignore. And for a lot of people, 
this was the start of something much bigger. So the filibuster is Huey's career. It's the perfect metaphor for his career. Huey may not have won many friends with his gruff, combative, and sometimes downright annoying approach, but he did manage to win one friend in the Senate during his time there. Hattie Carraway of Arkansas was an odd fish for the Senate of the day. Her husband had died in 1931, leaving his Senate seat vacant. The Arkansas political elite got together, they had a bit of a chinwag, and they decided that none of them really fancied the job of serving as senator for a few months, only to then have to fight an election. So they indulged the old southern tradition that let a widow take over her husband's old seat, and Hattie Carraway ended up in the Senate. She wasn't the first female senator at this point because other widows had taken over their husband's seats before. Although she'd never expected to be put in this position, she was far from the placeholder that everyone in Arkansas thought she'd be. She felt a real sense of duty on more than one level, to the base that had voted for her husband, and more broadly. Nor was she willing to stand aside for them to let them ascend to their thrones, declaring, The time has passed when a woman should be placed in a position and kept there only while someone else is being groomed for the job. Huey, who was short on friends anyway, well, he liked Hattie, and he noted that she was regularly one of the few people to vote in favour of his unpopular programmes about sharing the wealth. When Hattie surprised the establishment by announcing that she was running for re-election, and of course was instantly dismissed by all the papers who thought she'd come a distant last, Huey saw his chance to go back out on the campaign trail. He needed all the friends he could get in the Senate. And besides, Arkansas was a good place for him to go politically. It might be that there, a neighbouring state, his populist measures could take root and prove that Louisiana wasn't a fluke. It could catapult him further onto the national stage. And of course, it helped that the other senator from Arkansas was his new arch-rival and punching bag, Joe Robinson. He offered to help Hattie campaign. For her part, eh, she liked Huey, but thought him too radical in a lot of respects. And she was fiercely independent, writing in her diary, I won't give up my vote for anyone. Sitting in this room day after day without the freedom to vote for myself would be beyond pointless for me. So she agreed to accept Huey's help and let him campaign with her. But to her credit, she said that Huey couldn't use it as a platform to attack Senator Robinson. And Huey could never ask for her loyalty in votes. Huey agreed. What followed in just six days was described aptly as a circus attached to a tornado. All of the tactics that Huey had honed and perfected in Louisiana were transferred to the people of the neighbouring state. Tons of circular letters in favour of Hattie and Huey's Share Our Wealth programme, they, well, they were all distributed. In their soundtrack, they bowled from town to town, attracting ever bigger crowds. Some of them might have shown up just to see the circus, but more than a few of them left convinced that Huey was the next big thing in politics, and willing to support the widow with his endorsement. Huey, quote, I'm here to pull a whole bunch of pot-bellied politicians off this old woman's neck. End quote. The classic mix of Huey's radicalism, smooth talking and humour, was all there. He held up a Bible, arguing that Jesus would have been in favour of sharing the wealth, and that the big men in the Senate thought they knew better than the Lord. One of Huey's proposals was to limit wealth to $1 million, one of the most radical measures ever put before the Senate. But Huey didn't choose to put it that way, Instead, he chose to focus on mocking the poor millionaire. Why, it was awful. That means that if one of these poor millionaires went to bathe and shave, he would only get $500 richer by the time he put his clothes back on. 
Behind the pomp, ceremony and drama, the ruthless efficiency of the long machine in terms of organising these massive campaign events can't be underestimated. At one campaign rally, the crowds that turned up were so large they had to move from the town hall to the baseball stadium. There are some estimates that the rallies Huey held in the state were the biggest meetings that had ever been held in the state period. Again, the establishment hated it, and this just fuelled Hattie and Huey's fire. I heard one of Mrs Carraway's opponents is hollering already, Huey said. I won't mention his name, because he's never had that much free advertising in his life. And my folks told me not to speak ill of the dead, even if they're only politically dead. It did turn out that his opponents were politically dead. When the results came in, Hattie won by a landslide, and became the first woman ever to be elected to a full Senate term. Now it's true that the conditions were quite good for Huey in Arkansas. It also had a population of rural farmers, bitten hard by the Great Depression, who were willing to listen to this kind of radicalism. A lot of them knew that Hattie had already been a champion for their interests in the Senate, and they might not have trusted her opponents from the big cities to do the same thing. But the landslide still shocked the Arkansas political establishment. He had shown that Louisiana was not a one-off fluke. By taking his show on the road, and getting some admittedly deserved credit for Hattie's victory, he had begun to inch closer to that national stage. 250,000 folks from Arkansas had seen his passionate speeches about sharing the wealth. Word of Huey was starting to spread beyond Louisiana in a big way. And he knew it. He said that he could take the state in a national election. But it was still very necessary for Huey to maintain his grip on his home state. But it was still very necessary for Huey to maintain his grip on his home state. And in those early days of the Senate, he scored another political coup. His chosen candidate, Overton, won Louisiana's other senatorial seat in an election rife with allegations of corruption and bitterly fought over the long issue. Once again, everyone knew who the Kingfish had endorsed and his shadow hung over the contest even when he wasn't there actively campaigning and stumping for his man. He could perhaps feel that he had three seats in the Senate already. His block was starting to grow. But Huey was not the only great politician to make hay during the deprivations and suffering of the Great Depression. His next opportunity to force his way onto the national stage came when he was supporting another radical up-and-comer, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Despite some attempts to oppose him from within Louisiana, Huey led the delegation to the Democratic National Convention, where they would pick their nominee for the 1932 presidential election. Huey knew that FDR had a decent chance of winning, and that by supporting him, they could shift democratic politics towards more radical left-wing reforms. FDR had already started talking about helping the forgotten men, and sharing in the distribution of the national wealth. Well, that was music to Huey's ears. Huey knew, probably, that FDR did not support anything quite as radical as what he was proposing on the campaign trail, but it was a step in the right direction, and Louisiana's votes had proved important in helping him get through as the presidential candidate. Huey knew a good rising star to hitch himself to when he saw one, and he brought the same type of whirlwind politics to persuading the delegates in the South to vote for Roosevelt. FDR knew that, at this early stage, he could get good numbers of votes from the radical fringes. Endorsements from Huey Long and Father Charles Coughlin, another radical, the radio priest, who proposed dramatic measures to resolve the Great Depression in his popular radio broadcasts. But such men were also dangerous, and for his part, FDR was wary of Huey Long. His naked ambition was all too obvious to a canny politician like FDR. He commented famously, quote, These are not normal times. The people are jumpy, 
and ready to run after strange gods. It's all very well for us to laugh at Huey, but actually we have to remember all the time that he really is one of the two most dangerous men in the country. We shall have to do something about him. End quote. The other most dangerous man, by the way, was General Douglas MacArthur. And to Eleanor Roosevelt, of course, Huey would always be that awful man. Now, there are plenty of others in the Senate who had begun to agree with her and get more and more sick of Huey. As the year wore on and FDR swept to victory, things began to get a little bit dicier for him. It's hard for me to tell from the outside whether he genuinely believed that he was going to be able to win senators around to his radical scheme. Surely he must have realised that a lot of them had far more to lose from supporting this kind of politics than they could possibly gain. It seems like he was always planning on just using his Senate seat to catapult himself into the public eye with greater and greater prominence, until he could go over the heads of the establishment and appeal to the masses as he always had done. But there are genuine signs of frustration in his increasingly bitter and vitriolic attacks on the senators who did not support his bills. He said, quote, You're among the unemployed and you don't even know it yet. Go now, you rich men, Huey yelled, brandishing a Bible, and weep and howl for the miseries that will come upon you. On another occasion, Huey was even more direct about these miseries. A mob is coming to hang the other 95 of you damned scoundrels, and I'm undecided whether to stick here with you or go out and lead it. The New York Times was the epitome of establishment despair at Huey's antics. During one filibuster that took up the Senate for a whole week, they editorialised, No argument moves him. Appeals to reason he despises. Like a slave driver, he cracks his whip over the backs of the Senate. How long will the Senate lie down under his insults? The Republican Party, now in opposition, well, they like nothing better than to let Huey speak and embarrass the Democrats, so he was able to continue his filibusters unabated with their support, and he was starting to alienate nearly everyone in the Senate. He attempted to persuade them of the differences between his Share Our Wealth programme and communism. This platform is the only thing that can save you people from communism, he'd cry. But his cries fell on deaf ears. Soon enough, it was time to take his programme to the people directly. In a broadcast on national radio in 1934, Huey laid out the terms of his Share Our Wealth programme. Although the details were often sketchy and shifting, the basic items remained the same. Personal fortunes would be capped at 5 to $8 million, which works out equivalent to $96 million today. No one would be able to earn over a million a year. Inheritances would be similarly limited. With the money a guaranteed basic income of $2,000 would be assured for every family. This is at a time when, at the bottom of the Depression, more than half of all families were earning less than that. College education and vocational training would be free for all. Anyone over the age of 60 would get a state pension. The working week would be reduced to 30 hours, and every worker would be entitled to a four-week holiday. It was a utopia. It was a fantasy but people were starting to listen. His appeal went beyond logic. It was deeply emotional. He said, quote, But in the name of our good government, people today are seeing their own children hungry, tired, half-naked, lifting their tear-dimmed eyes into the sad faces of fathers and mothers who cannot give them food and clothing they both need, and which is necessary to sustain them. 
and that goes on day after day and night after night, when day gets into darkness and blackness, knowing those children would arise in the morning without being fed, and probably go to bed at night without being fed. We do not propose to say that there will be no rich men. We do not ask to divide the wealth. We only propose that when one man gets more than he and his children and children's children can spend or use in their lifetimes, that then we shall say that such a person has his share. Did Huey really believe that his sums added up? Did he really believe that this kind of system could work in the United States? I don't think we can ever know that for certain. It does seem very idealistic for someone who knew as much about how things really went on, the corruption, backbiting and double dealing of government, to believe that this kind of system could ever sustain itself. At the same time, he had beat the same radical drum for his entire political career. Even from the early days in Louisiana, he had redistributed wealth from corporations towards the public good, or at least portrayed himself as doing that. The only thing we really know about Huey is that, whether he wanted to do it for angelic or demonic reasons, he was hell-bent on getting into power. Take this quote from early in his Senate career, which is pretty revealing. He said, A perfect democracy can come close to looking like a dictatorship, a democracy in which the people are so satisfied they have no complaint. And then there's his response to the people who dared to question whether share our wealth could work financially. When they said they didn't understand the numbers, he'd say, You don't have to understand, just shut your damned eyes and believe it. This philosophy can be helpful on some occasions, but it's not what you'd call good accountancy. The reality was that, for share our wealth, the numbers didn't add up. Not only did it have all the problems of socialism, the implementation problem, the flight of capital problem, corruption issues, but even by successfully confiscating all of the fortunes of the millionaires, Huey would have nowhere near enough to fulfil all of his promises. But reality didn't have to enter into it. Every man a king, and no man wears a crown. It wasn't long before, inevitably, Huey began to break with FDR. The men distrusted each other, and at any rate, Huey was probably concerned that FDR's popularity and success could make it far more difficult for him to become president. FDR was splitting the left, after all. FDR's was the presidency that really started the American tradition of the first hundred days, and FDR's first hundred days were a real barnstormer of a success. They radically altered the direction of the country with the first New Deal legislation. Huey generally supported this famous series of measures that established the Federal Emergency Relief Administration to spend money on soup kitchens, employment, education and food supplies. The vast public works programmes like the PWA and the Tennessee Valley Authority. They built dams on the Great River. They were all endorsed by Huey. But he made it clear that his endorsement was not uniform and completely conditional on the politics. He said, Whenever this administration has gone to the left, I've voted with it. And whenever it's gone to the right, I have voted against it. The New Deal was reform, and it was a start, but it was nowhere near as vast and sweeping as what Huey had in mind. There were reasons aside from idealism and ideology for the break with FDR, though. With the New Deal and all of its public works programmes came a vast influx of federal jobs. Unless we forget, these jobs are the lifeblood of the long political machine and the currency he traded in. It was absolutely vital for him, in order to maintain his hold on power, 
that there should be no interruption to this supply of government jobs, the ones that he'd dole out to reward his supporters. But FDR had absolutely no intention of strengthening the long grip on Louisiana. Traditionally, the senior senator, which was now Huey, was consulted before federal jobs were awarded. But FDR broke with this tradition, and the federal jobs were decided on a non-partisan basis. In effect, this meant that most of them ended up going to anti-longs. FDR was hoping to limit Huey's power and have greater federal power. Huey was enraged, and even said, probably only half-joking, that Louisiana should secede from the Union to stop the federal bureaucrats, hobocrats, and 58 other types of crats from running their affairs. Once Roosevelt had denied Huey the patronage he craved, he was just as often an outspoken critic of Roosevelt as he was a defender. He began redoubling his efforts to introduce the Share Our Wealth Bills. The shaky alliance between FDR and his radical friend from Louisiana had lasted less than six months. Quote, no, I will not participate in the Democratic victory tonight, Huey cried after another piece of New Deal legislation was passed. I do not care for my share in a victory that means the poor and the downtrodden, the blind, the helpless, the orphaned, the bleeding, the wounded, the hungry and the distressed will be the victims. It might have been more honest for him to say that he didn't feel like his share in the victory was big enough. Huey feigned a complete lack of concern about the patronage, saying, as far as I'm concerned, they can keep it. And it was true that he had a lot of state jobs, and his increasing popularity to keep him in charge. But Roosevelt denying Huey patronage in the New Deal federal jobs was a big deal for matters in his home state. In fact, it was probably a key factor in shattering the shaky alliance between Huey and the mayor of New Orleans. You'll remember that New Orleans had always been a hotbed for anti-long sentiment, When Huey was elected, it was only the promise of continued patronage and jobs to the old regular machine of New Orleans and some shaky truces that had got him the votes he'd received from the capital. With even these jobs looking to go to anti-longs, the mayor, Walmsley, and the old regular machine in the city were fit to burst, and after an attempt to negotiate a pact failed, they broke all political ties with the long camp. Tensions rose dramatically when Huey effectively tried to steal a special election for Congress from Louisiana's 6th district. The seat was left vacant by a sudden death, and Huey tried to announce the election with just one candidate on the ballot, claiming there was um, too little time to hold a primary election. Anti-long mobs burned ballot boxes, and even effigies of Huey himself. For a few weeks there were armed standoffs between Huey's state police troopers and the anti-long forces. Eventually, a somewhat legitimate election was held, and the anti-long candidate was successful but Louisiana politics would continue to be a primary focus of Huey's attention, even as he made his mark on the Senate and the country as a whole. The system had always been corrupt. There had always been unscrupulous people who had abused it. But the polarisation in the state, and the bitterness of the enmities that seemed to surround Huey, meant that things that were once unthinkable were beginning to happen more and more often. Armed force was beginning to have a greater influence on politics. This is the type of situation that you can get yourself into, in very divided times. With that, we'll leave Huey Long for this episode. Thank you for listening to Autocracy Now. If you've enjoyed the show, please review us, rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, your favourite podcast network, spread the word to anyone else who might possibly be interested. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, any of those social media things we all love so much. You can email me or direct message me with your questions, comments, concerns, suggestions for improvement, 
I'm going to tease you a little bit with the title of the next episode. It's called A Long Shot? Hello, and welcome to Autocracy Now. Today, it's our last episode in our series on Huey P. Long. Episode 6, A Long Shot? Last episode, we looked at Huey Long's dramatic entrance into the United States Senate. It's fair to say that he treated his new office with the contempt that you might have if you planned to vacate it in pretty short order. We all remember his promise. First public office, then the governorship, then the Senate, and then the presidency. His lunatic propositions to share our wealth, which were being endlessly voted down. His flamboyant filibustering. Well, it might have made him an annoyance or even a joke to his fellow senators, with a few exceptions. But he was playing to the public gallery. His aim, as ever, was not to work within the system, but to work around it by any means necessary. Huey again, quote, God invited us all to come and eat and drink all we wanted. He smiled on our land and we grew crops of plenty to eat and wear. He showed us in the earth the iron and the other things to make everything we wanted. He unfolded to us the secrets of science so that our work might be easy. God called, come to my feast. And then what happened? Rockefeller, Morgan and their crowd stepped up and took enough for 120 million people and left only enough for 5 million for all the other 125 million to eat. And so many millions must go hungry and without these good things God gave us unless we call on them to put some of it back. End quote. Share our wealth reminds me a little of reading the Communist Manifesto for my research on the Stalin episodes. There's so much eloquence and emotional persuasiveness when denouncing the system and proposing a utopia than there is in the practical explanation of how we will transition between these states. Share our wealth, unlike communism, was an even less fleshed out theory. It did nothing to address corporate interests. What of the wealth and assets of private companies and shareholders? Share our wealth was distinguished from communism because it didn't propose to nationalise industry. But then, what do you do with it? Huey probably had a better economic understanding than the naivety of the policy really indicated, but the details didn't concern him. This was a time when people were looking for all sorts of solutions, like the radio priest Charles Coughlin, who we mentioned already, was saying that all of the economic woes would be cured by putting America back on the gold standard. Now, there's no reason to think that that's necessarily true, but people wanted to believe in a panacea to help them. As far as Huey's Share Our Wealth might have gone, people might have mockingly referred to it as the Share Our Swag programme. But by the middle of 1934, Huey was receiving more mail than any other senator. Later on, as this increased, it got to the stage where he was getting more posts than the president over 60,000 letters a week. A staff of 25 people worked around the clock to handle it all. He founded Share Our Wealth Societies throughout the country for people to meet and discuss the programme and agitate politically. Admittedly, these are broadly Huey's own figures, but he claimed that after a month, the Share Our Wealth clubs had 200,000 members. After a year, they had 8 million. This was 20% of the population who had voted in the last general election. 
Share our wealth may have been a chimera with no real means of funding it and no hope of success. But that didn't mean it wasn't wildly popular, especially in the South, in Louisiana and the neighbouring states with similar populations, where Huey enjoyed his greatest support. Could Huey Long's travelling salesman charm, populist appeal, and willingness to win by any means necessary really sweep him into the White House? He was beginning to seem like less and less of a joke. And as people stopped laughing, they began working out how to seriously oppose him. In this perhaps is the greatest achievement of Huey Long's political career. He, and other populist would-be kings like Charles Coughlin, were important factors in the mind of FDR as he negotiated the New Deal. Roosevelt supported a Louisiana investigation into electoral fraud that brought plenty of embittered anti-Longites together. Even Earl, Huey's estranged brother, testified against him. Huey, struggling to take the betrayal, got up dramatically during Earl's testimony and yelled that he was lying. FDR is remembered warmly for his fireside chats, radio broadcasts where he explained his policies and the actions of the government to the people. Direct democracy, whereby he appealed to the people to support legislation by writing to their members of Congress. But these were similar tactics as Huey had used in Louisiana, and had begun to use on the national stage. Huey may not have been able to speak with the authority of the president, but via the public radio, he could and did reach as many people. We've already mentioned Charles Coughlin, whose initially religious broadcasts gradually degenerated into a sort of populist, anti-Semitic fascism. What's interesting about the 1930s is that we have a case study for a new medium, initially not well regulated, that gives plenty of voices a near equal platform that they haven't had before. People can choose to tune in to whatever sounds best to them. Sound familiar? The mainstream media and newspapers in Washington, and nationally, generally decried Huey as a populist, a radical, and a wannabe dictator. These allegations were not without their merits. We've seen the ways that Huey did subvert the democratic process in Louisiana. Even in 1933-4, he was being investigated for his use of dummy candidates, who allowed the Long Camp to have more electoral commissioners than they were due. These electoral commissioners often made sure that people voted the right way, if you see what I mean. The brazenness of this tactic came out in the investigation. When one of the dummy candidates was questioned, the lawyer questioning him asked why, if he was a genuine candidate, he had not chosen to do any campaigning at all, or even announcing his candidacy to the press. Given that he hadn't told anyone about the campaign, but needed their votes, was it therefore perhaps not likely to be successful? The dummy candidate struggled for a minute. How could he make it look like he was genuinely trying to win the office? But eventually he came up with a response. In a democracy, that's the risk you take. Huey loved all publicity, even negative publicity. Where once he'd railed against Standard Oil as his greedy symbol of corporate interest, trying to smear him through the lying newspapers, he could now just replace it with the big national banks of J.P. Morgan and Rockefeller on Wall Street. In August 1933, Huey's pet newspaper, the Louisiana Progress, got an upgrade in line with his new ambitions. It was now the American Progress. It was also around this time that he finally published his first autobiography, Every Man a King, which we drew on heavily for our discussions of his early life. It charts his rise to fame, political power and prominence, in a hilariously biased but also highly readable way. There's a really brilliant incident from around this time that I won't dwell on in too great a detail, but it's good to read about it. 
Essentially what happened drunk one night was that Huey got into some kind of altercation in a men's toilets and ended up with a black eye. Most unbiased accounts tend to assume it was a drunken scuffle over some minor urine-related slight, but the papers had a field day and gleefully printed all kinds of scurrilous rumours. Huey, meanwhile, claimed that it was a member of the House of Morgan, alluding to the bank, and offering his own wild conspiracy theory that a team of gangsters hired by the Wall Street was responsible. For the rest, I'll quote T. Harry Williams, writing, remember, in 1969. Quote, Huey need not have been bothered by the publicity or the campaign of the conservative newspapers to ridicule him into oblivion. Neither damaged him seriously, although they would have ruined an ordinary politician. Such a man would have issued solemn denials which would not have been believed. Huey chose exactly the right defence. He told a monumental falsehood. Hardly anyone believed that he'd been beaten up by gangsters sent by the Morgans, but the story was so magnificently conceived and compelling that people laughed admiringly and overlooked his indiscretion. End quote. For future reference, if you're going to lie in politics, be sure to double down. In some ways, his willingness to say almost anything actually helped him in the Senate debates. One Democratic senator recalled, quote, Frankly, we were afraid of him. He is unscrupulous beyond belief. He might say anything about me, something entirely untrue that could ruin me in my state. He will go to the limit. End quote. Even as Huey's popularity and notoriety grew, he still had to deal with rising political tensions back in Louisiana. One of the issues with establishing the kind of domination that Huey did over politics and government, but stopping short of throwing all your political enemies in jail like a Hitler or a Stalin, is that all those enemies are still there, looking for any opportunity in his absence to regain control of the state. In May of 1934, 500 armed men arrived in the state capital. Every one of them was fervently anti-Long. They'd been brought there by a league of anti-Longs who were planning a political coup. Note that this was not a military coup. The armed men were merely there to help keep the peace if things got ugly. But the distinction was beginning to blur. Although the anti-Longs believed that they might be able to vote to impeach and remove key officers in the Louisiana government, including Huey's sock puppet governor, O.K. Allen, they were mistaken. Huey rushed back to offer the appropriate bribes and remind the appropriate people of their place alongside him. Once again, the long machine proved too ruthlessly efficient and Huey himself too personally organised and determined for anyone to hope to combat it successfully. The anti-long pretenders were forced to return their armed men home without impeaching anybody. Huey used the temporary political victory and his presence in Louisiana to tighten his control, ramming new laws through. His favourite tactic was to attach them as amendments to bills that had been proposed by anti-longs, then order a quick vote. One of them established state-appointed electoral commissioners. No more need for dummy candidates. Huey could pick his own man. Now it could be done directly. The original bill had been designed to regulate dummy candidates. Other measures were essentially directly to punish the rebellious old regulars in New Orleans. Their liquor sales were taxed, and other sources of income for the city were stripped. The attempt to seize power was so flagrant that an anti-long legislator sarcastically offered an amendment, granting election officers the power to, quote, shoot and kill any person who cast their ballot against the desires of Senator Long. End quote. It wasn't passed, but maybe Huey thought he didn't need to pass it. All of these laws that pertain to elections were important, because there were congressional and judicial elections in Louisiana coming up in 1934. Specifically, there were a lot of local elections in New Orleans, 
Huey wanted to assert his dominance over the mayor, Walnsey, and the old regular machine that now backed the mayor and his anti-long bloc. Huey flexed his muscle. Fifty armed members of the National Guard in Louisiana occupied the voting registrar's office in New Orleans and poked machine guns out of the window. Walmsley, in response, ordered the local police and soldiers to defend the city hall. Soon 600 policemen were surrounding the National Guard, armed with machine guns and tear gas. Huey ordered that another 600 guardsmen were to be mobilised and held at a nearby barracks. As this dramatic armed standoff continued, the machinery of state politics was also whirring. Huey convened a special session of the legislature. The bills proposed were nothing more than a naked, unconstitutional power grab. The governor would be allowed to call on his militia at any time, for any reason, and no court could stop him. The governor could reprieve anyone of many different crimes, including contempt of court. The courts and local authorities were stripped of powers. Longites in the state legislature hurried the bills through in less than a day, with a minimum of debate, almost as fast as they could be read. In one of Huey's legislative flurries, an opponent asked Huey, When will we know what these bills are all about? The kingfish replied, Why, Tuesday, after they've passed. Most of them involved seizing greater control of some board or other for patronage purposes, or punishing Huey's enemies. Now the police, the firemen, the teachers, Huey had control over all of them. For a man so keen to share the wealth, it's interesting to note that Huey also appointed himself to act as a lawyer on behalf of some of the public agencies, a lucrative gig that earned him more than $150,000 in 1935. It's almost as if, with these measures that were so blatant and under such dramatic circumstances, Huey was daring his opponents to stop him. A more conservative, insidious Huey, maybe even the Huey of a few years ago, might have come to some sort of arrangement, let tensions die down, and sneakily increased his own power that way. But as far as the modern Huey was concerned, Louisiana was his, and anyone who wanted to stop him was welcome to try. The final straw for some conservatives, perhaps, was when he passed a tax on oil refineries. This was the same tax that had nearly caused him to be impeached as governor. Then, there had been 20 days of debate, and it had damn near brought his political career to an end. Now, it was done in 10 minutes flat, with the legislature barely even realising what they were passing. He broadcast daily to the people. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Huey P. Long again, telling you how we're going to clear out this rotten bunch of grafters. The anti-Longs attempted to fight fire with fire, rabble-rousing and stirring up popular resentments in the city with large public meetings. But it did not work. When the elections finally rolled around, Huey and his candidates resoundingly defeated the old regular tickets performing well in almost all of the elections in New Orleans. The last political stronghold of the anti-Long seemed to have fallen into Huey's grasp. By the end of 1934, he had thoroughly trounced most of the opposition in Louisiana, at least in elections. The major newspapers would also suffer Huey's wrath. He introduced the newspaper tax on advertising revenues to severely curtail their profits. He called it a tax on lying. Eventually it was deemed to be unconstitutional by the US Supreme Court, but Huey had shown his willingness to use his powers to attack the media. The anti-longs that remained began to talk more openly about armed resistance to Huey as the only option. State politics did have some influence on goings-on on the national stage. J. Edgar Hoover, who was running the FBI at this stage, ordered daily personal reports into Huey's actions, which were delivered directly to the White House. In 1934, Roosevelt got the IRS to investigate Huey and his associates for potential tax fraud. 
there were plenty of dodgy things going on, especially with the notorious win-or-lose oil company. Huey and his secretary, Alice Lee, owned plenty of the shares of the win-or-lose company, and it mysteriously bought and sold the rights to drill for oil in Louisiana. Eventually, in 1935, the investigation would confidently report that they had enough evidence to convict Huey Long of tax fraud and numerous other crimes, and bring an end to the reign of the kingfish. History would unfold in another direction, but they were already beginning to convict Huey's lesser associates in the long political machine, going after the little fish before the kingfish, and closing the net as if he were Al Capone or some other gangster. But alongside trying to smear Huey and take him down, FDR was forced to do something about his popular support too. FDR could not be outflanked from the left by a demagogue like Huey Long, and so Huey is probably responsible for moving the New Deal platform further to the left. The background appeal for Share Our Wealth must have been in FDR's mind when he established Social Security, which contains some, albeit watered-down, versions of the same proposals for old-age pensions and relief for the needy that Share Our Wealth had contained. FDR learned the lesson that the anti-long legislatures never did. It's not enough to simply be against a demagogue, to cry dictator, and to insist that this awful man should be thrown in jail. It was necessary to offer people an alternative platform, win the war of words in explaining why this platform is better and more realistic and convince them that you, and not the demagogue, really have their best interests at heart. After all, it wasn't necessarily Huey's power grabs, but it was instead the loyalty of the people that really made him difficult to dislodge in Louisiana. Even when the anti-longs in Louisiana formed the Square Deal Association to oppose Huey, which went as far as occupying the public square in Baton Rouge, the state capital, Huey could beat them back by force. And why? because the people of the state were still on his side. Of course, a lot of FDR's fears were politically motivated, and his desire to discredit Huey had a timeline attached. The presidential election of 1936 was just around the corner. Huey had alluded to the fact that he might run in the past, and he had rebelled against the Democratic Senate, almost from the beginning of his term as office. He was establishing his own separate brand and clear popular appeal through the Share Our Wealth programme. The reality of the political situation was that Huey didn't have anywhere near enough votes to win a race in 1936, but there is no doubt that he had a grand strategy. He entered into negotiations with Charles Coughlin, the noted radio priest and populist who would later go on to endorse fascism. Both of them shared an underground appeal with the masses who were dissatisfied with the elites and the establishment. Between them, if they ran together, they might be able to eke out some 6-8 to million votes around the numbers of people in the Share Our Wealth Clubs, remember, and would surely carry some southern states along with them. They might also carry the swing vote in key northern states. Huey thought that, by splitting the progressive vote, he could ensure that FDR did not receive a second term. The Republican candidate would then be elected, inevitably try to undo some of the New Deal reforms. Then the country would slip into further economic chaos and depression, and, with the failure of both viable alternatives, Huey himself could sweep to the presidency in 1940. This was not an idle fantasy. Stranger things have happened. The fact that Huey was not always clear about whether he himself would run, or whether he would endorse a populist candidate, is evidence that he might have been eyeing chaos and 1940 eagerly. And we've seen his astonishing political career together. Would you really put it past him to pull something like this off? He was already focusing on demonising FDR in speeches in the Senate. 
Quote, So it has been that while people have begged for meat and bread, Roosevelt's administration has sailed merrily along, ploughing under and destroying the things to eat and wear, with tear-dimmed eyes and hungry souls made to chant for this new deal. In retaliation, FDR ordered any federal employee who was a long supporter to be fired. Millions of dollars worth of federal aid were to be withheld from Louisiana, on the grounds that Huey would use the money to strengthen his own political machine. Roosevelt even hired men to speak on national radio against Huey. One of them said that, quote, Hitler couldn't hold a candle to Huey in the art of the old Barnum ballyhoo. Huey, who knew how to speak eloquently and in a reasoned tone of voice when he wanted to, used his response slot not to hurl insults and abuse back, but instead to carefully and patiently explain the failings of the New Deal and the Share Our Wealth plan that he hoped would replace it. There were no insults, no clownish anecdotes, and no flying off the handle. Just earnest, calm persuasion. Millions of people, expecting a show, tuned in, and heard not the ramblings of a crazy demagogue, but what sounded like a reasonable man, selling them political utopia. It was a brilliantly exercised piece of restraint, and a political disaster for Roosevelt. On April 1st, 1935, Huey's grinning face made the cover of Time magazine. He would destroy both political parties, abolish the Electoral College, maintain his power through universal suffrage. And I defy any son of a bitch to get me out in under four terms, he told a writer of the time. Huey continued to be a thorn in the side of the Roosevelt administration as he was gearing up to run. This was marked by increased use of the filibuster. He did it five times in 1935, much to the annoyance of the Senate floor as they were trying to pass Roosevelt's second New Deal. In June 1935, he filibustered the National Recovery Act, a bill that was particularly annoying to Huey because it would give him no patronage and let Roosevelt undermine him in Louisiana. He started on topic with an attack on the act, but then quickly derailed into calling Roosevelt a fascist and saying that, quote, the New Deal bird of prey is stealing and eating children, stripping flesh from their bones. Eventually, he just started rambling about anything that came into his mind. He talked about his favourite recipes, even quoted extensively from Victor Hugo, which is exactly what I'd do if I wanted to kill an awful lot of time speaking. Well, that would write a podcast. Reporters in the press gallery actually sent down requests telling Huey what to speak about next, including one about Frederick the Great. At 5.30am, babbling about the correct way to make coffee, Huey could hold on no longer and had to dash to the men's room. The senators quickly voted and passed the bill, and then presumably fell asleep. Huey's filibusters were not all funny, though. Key parts of the Liberal Second New Deal legislation were being blocked. Your selfish desire to get publicity, said one senator, has ruined the hopes of millions of people. And Roosevelt, for his part, even began to talk about a wider distribution of wealth through taxation in his speeches. The rhetoric of socialism, the rhetoric of long. This is what he felt he had to use to survive. Huey was never short on confidence. Around this time, his second book was being written. He called it My First Days in the White House. It was a wild, fantastical, dime-store type book, as much filled with jokes and attacks on his political enemies as it was with genuine policy. What was political was even wilder. The bankers would be put in charge of redistributing the assets that they'd formerly controlled. All except J.P. Morgan, who was a bridge too far for Huey. FDR would still be involved in government, 
He wanted him in charge of the Navy. But the threat he posed was a much more serious one than the fantasy in his book. Huey was plotting to destroy Roosevelt in the election, making plans to form his third party. He was even being offered huge campaign contributions from Wall Street special interests. They realised they could use him to undermine Roosevelt and secure a Republican government that would be more favourable to their interests. The money he used to buy more sound trucks and finance a national campaign, the first step on the road to the presidency. Just as he has told his astonished new wife at the age of 18, he had it all figured out. In September of 1935, Huey returned to Louisiana to deal with some local affairs. He called a special session of the legislature, passing some more bills to ruin anti-long areas of the state. It's amazing that he was still so involved in the local affairs of Louisiana, but such micromanagement was still necessary to ensure control. Huey's boundless energy never ceased. On September 8th, during a night session, he was trying to pass a bill that would deny a specific local judge, Judge Pavey, his re-election, by changing the constituency boundaries for the election, you know, gerrymandering. The bill had just passed on the House floor, and Huey headed to the governor's office to grant an interview to a reporter friend, with his entourage, lackeys, and bodyguards trailing behind him. It was at this moment when a man stepped out from behind a pillar and started walking up to Huey. At first no one noticed him. In fact, no one noticed him until they saw the pistol in his hand. One of Huey's associates tried to bat the assailant's arm away, but not before he fired. Huey was hit in the torso and staggered away. Huey's bodyguards caught up with the situation and pumped the assassin full of bullets. He was later found to have no fewer than 30 bullet wounds. But it was too late. Huey staggered out of the building and was taken to a hospital by a friend who had flagged down a nearby car. Within a few hours, word had spread, and hundreds of people descended on the hospital to find out what had happened to their hero, to see it for themselves. The assassin was one Carl Weiss, a doctor. He had never met Huey long before, although he was the son-in-law of the judge that Huey was trying to depose at the time. When Huey, dying although he didn't know it yet, was told the name of the gunman, he was confused. Vice? What did he want to shoot me for? I don't know him. Conspiracy theories naturally swirled around this event. The anti-Longcamp insisted that Huey had actually been killed by a bullet fired by his overzealous bodyguards when they were shooting Weiss. Many prolongs believe to this day that Weiss was hired by Long's political enemies, although they can provide no evidence that this was a planned assassination. One anti-Long alluded to the fact that if they were going to do it, they'd do it with machine guns to make sure he was dead. Weiss was an idealistic young man, and the most likely explanation was that he believed Huey Long was setting himself up as a tyrant. In the highly polarised atmosphere of heightened political tensions, he might have feared that this man would one day become president, that his menace was growing too great. He had previously, amongst friends, wept over the political injustice in the state. More than one witness testified that he'd said he was going to kill Huey Long. His own brother commented that, quote, his broodings finally unbalanced his mind, and, thus unbalanced, he saw as a martyr to liberty the man who would assassinate Senator Long. A last-ditch attempt at surgery was not enough to save Huey, but it took him two days to die, drifting in and out of consciousness, occasionally talking lucidly, sometimes wildly. This, perhaps, is how a hurricane dies. Surrounded by his family, friends and political associates, a week after he turned 42 years old, and, in his mind, just five years from the presidency, 
Huey Long died. The rest, of course, is history. Although with this particular figure, it's always going to be alternative history as well. If he had lived, if he had run in 1936 or in 1940, if he had managed to swing the election in the way so many expected him to do, if he had just fulfilled that last item on his political to-do list, what on earth would have happened? What kind of man was he? His legacy loomed large over Louisiana politics. Indeed, many members of his family would go on to hold elected office, including his brother, Earl. I haven't spoken to anyone from Louisiana, although if by some miracle someone from there is listening, I'd love to know what you think of the man today. But this was just one state, although for a while it was the Kingfisher's state. How on earth do we assess his legacy on American politics? How on earth do we figure out what kind of a man he was? Huey says, quote, I shall have to admit I am a demagogue. In old Greek language, that meant acceptable to the majority. When I advocated free school books, when I advocated free bridges instead of toll bridges, when I advocated paved roads instead of dirt tracks, that was demagoguery. There are many kinds of demagogues. Those who deceive the people in the interests of the lords and masters of all creation, the Rockefellers and the Morgans. Some deceive the people in their own interest. I would say they are politicians who do not keep their promises. I kept every promise I made. End quote. T. Harry Williams, whose wonderful biography of Huey I drew on heavily for this series, even at 900 pages it doesn't feel overly long. Well, he's certainly biased towards Huey's point of view, and he really does everything he can to downplay his undemocratic and gangsterish tendencies. But even he is forced to admit, quote, He wanted to do good, but to accomplish that, he had to have power. So he took power, and then to do more good, seized still more power. And finally, the means and the end became so entwined in his mind that he could not distinguish between them, could not tell whether he wanted power as a method or for its own sake. He gave increasing attention to building his power structure, and as he built it, he did strange, ruthless and cynical things. End quote. William sounds like a man trying to justify what he knows cannot be justified. He sounds like an apologist. That was written in 1969. If you Google Huey Long today, www.hueylong.com is a wonderful resource if you want an amazingly biased and unashamedly prolonged view of his life and career. I frequently did use it as a resource. It's got some great cartoons from the Louisiana Progress, Huey's paper. And one day I saw a tab called Perspectives. I'll quote from that. Who was Huey Long? It depends who you ask. In Depression-era Louisiana, Opinions on Huey Long were distinctly divided between the haves and the have-nots. There was no middle ground when it came to Huey Long. People either loved him or hated him. The poor regarded Long as a champion of the common man and swept him into power by large majorities. The wealthy regarded Long as a dangerous menace and lampooned him in the media as a demagogue and a dictator. End quote. The website barely mentions any of the darker sides of Huey's rule. The anti-democracy, the corruption, the kidnapping, the fiscal problems with share our wealth, the strong-arm tactics, etc. etc. Of course, we're not far enough removed from Long's own era for the political bias to really go away. Perhaps it never will. 
The issues that Long touches on in his career are fundamental issues for democracy's system of government. How do the wealthy elites in democracies reconcile themselves with populist leaders and maintain their control? How vulnerable are true democracies where everyone gets a vote to liars and masterful manipulators who proceed to sell them down the river? If someone lies and cheats their way into office, but wins by a clear majority, has democracy been subverted? Or is this just an inevitable, occasional consequence of a true democracy that we had to deal with, in the same way that aristocracies had to deal with the fact that every third king might be mad? We forget that, for centuries, in systems that are lauded as cornerstones of democracy, like ancient Greece and the Roman Republic, it was accepted that you could never allow the masses to vote. Only people with a stake in society, with property and with education, could be trusted not to fall for the lies and promises of any blustering, blundering dictator. I should also finally address the insinuations in my episodes on Long, because I couldn't resist picking out examples of quotes and actions that reminded me of a certain US political figure. They're similar figures in the way we react to them. People who like them view the elites in the media as out of touch and won't hear a word said against their hero, regardless of allegations of political corruption lying, or political inconsistency. People who dislike them accuse them of trying to become dictators, manipulating their naive supporters, and exploiting populist policies and impossible promises to gain power and wealth. All I'm going to say on the subject is that Huey was a lot more eloquent, a lot funnier, and he actually did more to undermine big corporations on behalf of the little guy than Trump ever did. Also, although he exaggerated his poverty, He's so much closer to the working man's hero than the man who inherited millions that I wonder what on earth might have happened if a politician with the charisma and energy of Huey Long had come along in 2015. That's not to say his intentions were pure or that he wouldn't have wrecked the country or that he wasn't just as corrupt. But it's just a fact. And in some ways, Huey proved himself to be far worse than almost any comparable politician in US history. The corrupt machine he established which siphoned the oil wealth of Louisiana into a few pockets, including his own, have left inequality and poverty in the state as bad as they were before his reign, despite his claims. The state still ranks 45th in terms of median household income. We cannot hold him responsible for the actions of those who came later. But I think we've seen enough times that, at best, Huey could see no distinction between his own self-interest and the interest of the people. And at worst... He didn't care about the distinction. But the question I always knew I'd have to end on is simply, who was Huey Long? I've tried to show both sides, although with modern idealistic sensibilities, and in light of that many popular socialist leaders in the time since Long have been shown up to be dictators. Maybe there are times when I've judged him too harshly. On the other hand, it's possible I'm way too young and idealistic and haven't judged him harshly enough. Was he a man with some ideals who had to do ruthless things in order to maintain his position of power because of the political system in Louisiana that he was born into? Was he a corrupt and power-hungry demagogue who exploited the suffering and desperation of Depression-era people for personal gain? Did he start out idealistic and slip into dictatorial ways? Was his ultimate concern power for the people or power for Huey P. Long? There are signs and arguments and counter-arguments and opinions and counter-opinions, then and since. So many it'll make your head spin. Maybe if he had fulfilled that final goal on his list and become president, 
we would know what he was really all about. Maybe that would just intensify the historical debate. The assassin's bullet that cut him down as men will never know. But the fascinating life he led and its dramatic end, and the recurrence of these polarising figures in politics, who resemble him in one way or another, have meant that we will likely never stop discussing him. I'll leave him then, a lesson for history and a debate for the ages, with his final ambiguous words spoken as he lay dying in a hospital bed. You can hear them as those of a popular hero who never got this chance to overthrow an unfair and corrupt establishment. You can hear them as those of a would-be dictator whose ambitions were thwarted. You can hear them as those of a human being clinging to life, as we all cling to life. Dying, Huey said. God, please don't let me die. I have so much left to do. Thank you for listening to Autocracy Now. That's the end of our series on Huey P. Long. We'll be returning soon with another dictator. Until then, please tell your friends about the show if you've enjoyed it. Leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, etc. etc. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Facebook. Until then, be kind to each other. Our theme music is The Spirit of Russian Love by Zinadia Trokhani. And you can find her stuff at costat.bandcamp.com. That's K-O-S-T-A dot I hope you've enjoyed this episode. <laughs>